Coming to you from Charm City, this is Cece. And I'm Anthony. And this is Lit Pop Bang. Okay, let's get right in. We have a great show today. We're so excited. Our guest today is Malka Older. She's a writer, aid worker, and academic. Uh, she was named Senior Fellow for Technology and Risk at the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs in 2015. She has more than a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development. Uh, her doctoral work on the sociology of organizations at the... Uh, Malka, you want to give us that name? Yeah, it's the, it's the Institut d'études politiques de Paris, which is commonly known as Sciences Po. Great, Ooh. yeah, Sciences Po. Uh, that doctoral work explored the dynamics of multi-level governance and disaster response using the cases of Hurricane Katrina and the Japanese tsunami of 2011. Malka's science fiction political thriller, Infomocracy, was named one of the best books of 2016 by Kirkus, Book Riot, and the Washington Post. She's also the author of the sequels, Null States and State Tectonics, and the full trilogy was nominated for a Hugo Award. She's a creator of the serial Ninth Step Station, currently running on Serial Box, and the head writer for the Serial Box revival of the sci-fi series Orphan Black, Orphan Black, the next chapter. Her short story collection and other disasters is out now from Mason Jar Press, who, Yay! as we always say, is a person who produces this show. Malka, yes. welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a great intro. I am wondering who I am after hearing all that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that You're an terrific. important person. Uh, busy. Yeah. <laughs> busy. Well, definitely that from your bio. We can yeah. definitely see that. Yeah. And, you know, one thing we, we always give the bio, but then we always uh, ask the author, we say, you know, that's what's on paper. That's what you share uh, on, on websites and at readings. But what's something that's not on there? What's some you that's not included on the bio? I love dancing. I love martial arts. Um, honestly, I haven't done a lot of either lately because I've been so busy. Um, but I love travel and I love languages, um, which sort of fit together. And yeah. Actually, you just said you love languages. I was going to ask that question too. How many languages do you speak? Okay. So that's a complicated question. I mean, I really think when you talk about speaking a language, it's it's not like a binary yes, no. Right. There's this whole range from I can sort sure. of get along and ask where the bathroom is to, you know, I can have fluent to conversations. Fluent, yes. And, and also, I feel like there's a, there's sort of a context time thing. Right. Because like there are languages that I have spoken really well. If you asked me a question in them right now, I'd probably struggle to find the words. But if you dump me back in that country and I listen to people speaking them for, you know, even a couple of hours, I'd probably be right back in that headspace. Right. So right. I always find it a really difficult question to answer because I have studied a lot of different languages really mm. for fun because I love it. And I've lived in a lot of different countries, which is the best way to learn a language. So, you know, I think if you counted up everything I ever have spoken... <laughs> Uh, to, to some degree, it's probably around 12. Could I do them all at the wow. same time? No. Wow. You know, wow. Uh, 12. Well, you know, plus a lot of them are like the romance languages, which, you know, yeah, if, if you have Spanish and Italian, yeah. then Portuguese is pretty accessible. <laughs> and then yeah. French, you know, it's there are differences, but it's much easier to jump into one of those from that background than it is to go to, you know, then Japanese. And then once you have Japanese, you know, the Chinese is much easier, at least in the writing system. And yeah, so it's, eh, <laughs> you know, it's a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> and a good hobby. I mean, Malcolm, you make us feel like a deficient human being. Oh right? gosh, I'm just going to, I mean, you, you just make the rest of us look like we're just being lazy lima beings oh, sitting no, around no, here no. with our. Wait, I remember what I left out of my bio. It's all the time I spend procrastinating on Twitter. Oh, good. Uh, good uh, well, at least you make us feel better by saying yeah. that. At least, <laughs> least we're all on track there. Yeah. That makes me feel a lot better, Malcolm. That and like GBBO on Netflix. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of. Yeah, you do a couple of normal things. I do yeah. a lot of normal things. I do a lot of normal things. <laughs> 
So, Cece, you were going to start with a question about Malka's craft. Yeah, actually, I think it really relates actually a little bit to this question or this topic about speaking languages. Mm -hmm. So, Malka, I saw all of the different countries that you had done work in, Mm -hmm. um, many of them that I can't pronounce, but some that I can, uh, Darfur, Indonesia, Japan, uh, Uganda, all of these countries were on the list. And so I was sort of wondering... First of all, if you could talk to the listeners a little bit about the kind of humanitarian work that you do, because I'm not totally, um, you know, uh, advised on all all the things that you actually do in Mm -hmm. terms of your humanitarian efforts. And then the second part of that question would be, how does that influence your work, especially because you're writing, um, you're doing world building and science fiction to me is very interesting. It's interesting that you've lived and existed in a lot of spaces and that you sort of Um, bring some of that, I would imagine, uh, whether it's through cultural diversity or whatever, ethnic ethnic, um, tidbits that you throw into your work. But I'm just wondering how that influences or informs your creative writing. Yeah, absolutely. Those are both great, great questions. Um, so I should say too, I haven't, I've, I've been doing some consulting in the humanitarian area, um, but I haven't been working full time in it for a while because okay. as you noticed, I was doing other things like writing books and, and um, my PhD, but I have been consulting on and off. And, and I did work in that area like full time and very intensely for about 10 years. Um, right. So I, Uh, I did a range of things while I was doing it. I did both humanitarian response, which is when you go into some place, usually it's when you go into some place after a disaster of some kind, it's kind of a relatively short-term thing. You usually have R&R because it's so intense. You know, when you're there, you're working all the time. So some examples (laughs) of this are, you know, I, um, I worked in Japan after the tsunami that happened there. Um, partly because I lived in Japan before, so I spoke some Japanese and I'd worked in disasters already for this, the same organization. So, you know, they were really eager to get people who could speak in. And I was seconded to a Japanese NGO and worked with them. And, you know, specifically what we did, and, and it's kind of a good example for, for that type of, of work. Um, they were, again, you know, even within one thing, there's, there's a wide range, but we did things right. like, you know, we, the, the government was moving people into temporary housing. So they had these, ha- these, small temporary houses, apartments set up for people, but there weren't, there was nothing in them. Right. And people lost everything because the tsunami just, just wiped out houses. And so we used some of the money that we had raised from donors and bought sort of household sets of a bunch of stuff from a futon to sleep in to toilet paper. Uh, And then, you know, we, we would go and just unload everything from the truck and put them one of each thing in each apartment and, um, and do things that were sort of kind of physical and very, very basic needs, stuff like that. And then on the other hand, we worked on some other programs like uh, people were, until they were able to move into these apartments, they were stuck in evacuation centers. They were all living Mm. together in like high school gyms. Um, And we uh, worked with the town and the city chamber of commerce to set up um, mobile vending trucks that would go around with fresh produce or with cooked food so that people were able to, so on the one hand, the people who were doing those were able to get back to work, right, faster. These were people who maybe had owned a restaurant and then they lost it. So we were we tried to get them something mobile until they were able to rebuild. And the people who were in the evacuation centers were able to get access to some different food and also kind of feel like life was restarting a little bit. Um, so there's kind of this wide range of different sorts of of programs that you do. Uh, And then I also did some development work, which was, you know, when you're not going in for an emergency so much, but you're living in a place like Indonesia um, uh, or Sri Lanka or um, any number of other places and working on programs that the government either can't afford to or won't do. And you're trying to do things that are good for the population in general in the long term. So we did things like... um, uh, healthy nutrition programs for kids. We did things like water and sanitation programs that, you know, tried to improve access to clean water. Uh, we did things like disaster risk reduction, which is helping communities prepare for disasters before they happen uh, through a wide range of both soft stuff, like just making sure people are aware of it and have plans mm. and harder stuff like, you know, what kind of mitigation infrastructure do you need and how can you get it? What about communications infrastructure for when the cell towers go out? And so on and so on. So there's, there's, I can talk about this for a long time and I'm not going to do that, but there's a really broad range of different things, which is part of the reason I found the work um, really interesting and fulfilling in a lot of ways. Um, and 
as you suggest, it had a huge influence on um, my outlook on the world in general, and also the the work that I do, the writing that I do. Uh, and, you know, I think the biggest thing there really is just the realization of, on the one hand, how different different places can be, which is both, you know, going to places and seeing how people do things different and being amazed by it and fascinated. And then on the other hand, it gives you a very different perspective on your own culture and home home base and the way you were brought up to look at that and say, oh, these are things that I assumed were just always like that. And it yeah. turns out they're not. They're really different somewhere else. Um, so that's part of it. You know, I think that that is really helpful for someone who wants to imagine different worlds. It gives you ah. a sense of what the variables are and how vastly different they can be, how much they can change. Um, yeah. But the other thing that I find really important to me is, you know, when I would go to one of these places, um, often, you know, I'd get hired and go pretty quickly. So I tried to do a little bit of research beforehand, but <laughs> there's only so much you can do. And so I'd arrive in a place and just, you know, learn by looking around and listening to people and seeing how people acted in different situations. And it's very much analogous for me in my mind when I'm writing to the process of world building. So I, I yeah. like to think about what yeah. I'm putting the reader through as very much that experience, which is an experience that I, I love and, and treasure a lot, like that feeling of just learning everything and learning it in this sort of indirect way um, or osmosis kind of way where there's there's so many inputs that you can't necessarily figure them all out at once, but you're, you know, it's like being a, a, a small child again. It's a really invigorating yeah. way of, of learning things. So I, I, tr I really try to apply that um, to my world building and to how I think about getting the reader into some of these places that I imagine. Fantastic. I love that thought too, like you said, of, of not just experiencing cultural difference, but even like you said, just recognizing what is a cultural variable and recognizing what is yeah. within your own culture, not, yeah. you know, concrete and permanent and uh, ahistoric, but something that changes over time and place and, you know, how powerful that can be for thinking about new worlds. Yeah. And thinking yeah. about the world that you live in also. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think, th I think that's been really, um, really powerful for, for my writing. And I mean, you know, one other thing to add to it too, is we think about this in terms of geography and place, right? But it's also easy to think about it in terms of time. So, yeah. you know, when I was living in Darfur, with some exceptions, because there were quite a lot of satellite dishes, but <laughs> apart from that, you know, the place I was living, there was no grid electricity. Um, most of the water came from wells or, or um, sometimes boreholes with, with pumps. Um, people mainly used donkeys for transportation and their own feet, uh, sometimes camels. And so it, people were living in a lot of ways the way they have for really thousands of years with these, yeah. with these couple of exceptions. And so it, it's kind of a time travel thing too. And I found that seeing this vision, which could be the past and could also be the future, you know, a sort of post-apocalyptic or even just post, you know, <laughs> a lot of the things that we have now, whether or not it takes an apocalypse to get rid of them or not. Um, yeah. But, you know, to imagine this as a different time was also very liberating in terms of trying to think about what futures might look like. Yes. Yeah, of yeah. course. Of course. And speaking of that, speaking of those speculative elements, my question was going to go into um, a, a weird property that you wrote for. So uh, earlier this year, Serial Box announced that they would release a 10 episode audio series for the BBC America sci-fi show Orphan Black. Mm -hmm. um, and the show, which had a bit of a cult following, it ended in 2017. But the audio series series launched this fall and you were head writer for that series. Mm -hmm. Um, which was narrated by the lead actress of the TV show, Tatiana Maslany. I mean, I was just curious how that all came together for you, but also wondering if you could discuss um, like those unique challenges, but also opportunities for continuing stories and characters written by other writers. Yeah. I, okay. So first of all, let me say definitively that I was really part of that cult following for the show because I yeah. loved <laughs> Me the too. show. Clone Club. <laughs> yes, Clone Club forever. I I just thought it was so smart and well written and incredibly acted and brought up so many 
amazing issues and really, um, you know, really feminist, really got into a lot of, of issues for women from reproductive health to, uh, you know, just, I mean, that whole kind of initial metaphor of her being all these different people yeah. gave such an opportunity to have lots and lots of female main characters that are yeah. different, um, even while they're the same. Uh, so, you know, I totally love it. Um, and I was already working for Zero Bucks at that time. I had done, I oh. worked on uh, a sword and sorcery fantasy series by Mike Underwood um, called Born to the Blade, which was a ton of uh -huh. fun and also had um, on it Marie Brennan and, and Cassandra Kaw. So really oh, cool right. group of writers. And then I created the serial for the Nine Step Station, which is this uh, cyberpunk a near future Tokyo buddy cop procedural about murder mysteries. And it's also a lot of fun. We're, we're writing the second season right now um, with Fran Wilde, Curtis Chen and Jayco Yanagi. So, so they already knew me. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, one of the tricky things with a licensed property like this is you have to go around and figure out who's really into it without necessarily spilling the beans on what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I got this sort of cryptic message like, so do you like Orphan Black? And, you know, I was meaning like, yes, I, I love it. I love the show so much. Um, and, you know, and we went from there. Uh, and it was very challenging in, in really interesting different ways. I'd never worked with, you know, someone else's uh, intellectual property before or licensed property. Um, so I was curious to see how that would go. Uh, one thing that I really liked about how we did it is that this this show, which is a sequel to the original. Yeah, it's, it's, it's set, eight years in the future. Is that right? It's eight years in the future. Yeah. yeah. And that I thought was a really, really nice way to do it, because the original show has a great sort of closure right. after their five seasons. And you don't want to mess with that because, you know, it's hard for shows to get good closure in television, yeah. first of all. And when they do, it's, you know, it's such a triumph and you don't want to kind of stomp on it and, and feel like you're just uh, changing things immediately from there. Um, but eight years was a really good amount of time where there had been that distance. Yeah. Uh, and yet we were still coming back to the same characters and we could look at them with that much time in between. And, and, and fans have really reacted really well, I think, to this sort of thing of seeing how people, how these, these characters relationships and lives have evolved. Um, and I think one thing that was particularly fun about that, too, is there were a couple of, of children uh, in the show. Right. And so to look at them now as like young adults, college students, late teens is, is also really fun because we can give them a lot more autonomy and agency and sort of how they react to having <laughs> this fairly messed up childhood. Um, but adventurous. Uh, and so it's it's been really um, a lot of fun to write for. We had a terrific team on this one. Um and yeah, it's it's been great. So Malcolm, that you were talking about that talk, talking about the series and having the space for going eight years ahead. I was kind of wondering, and you talked about it a little bit, but were you intimidated to actually write for something that you had so much admiration for? I mean, if it were me, I would be. I mean, God forbid, you know, something basic like you know how to get away with murder. You know, Shonda Rhimes came to me and said, "Hey, Celeste, we'd <laughs> oh love you God. to fill in for the, you know, for the next <laughs> feature version of that." I would freak out in my home first before <laughs> before be I said yes. Yeah, so we're. I'm just sort of wondering. You said you already worked uh, for Serial Box, but were you kind of intimidated when they came to you? I, I totally was. Okay. I totally was. <laughs> okay. And, good. Because, good. I just you know, wanted to make sure you know you're. <laughs> No, absolutely. Because as the, and the show is, you know, so smart and I really admired the writing in it. Right. And, um, and I'll be honest, like it was hard too, because, you know, a television studio putting together a show has a full-time writer's room, yes. but that's right. their yes. day job. And they're there all the time. Yes. You know, that was not the case for us. We yeah. had, we had like a long weekend where we were all together. And then after that, you know, we were all pursuing our own both day jobs and freelance jobs and other things. And we were meeting pretty regularly, both on the phone and on Slack and having these discussions, but it's a very different situation. So that was, that was one part of it. Um, and, you know, we were, we knew from the beginning that we'd be sharing what we did with the studio because it was a licensed deal. So the studio was, was looking at things and making sure that it matched their images of the characters and kind of what mm. they wanted to yeah. protect about the show. Um, which we all wanted to protect too. But, you know, I mean, that's obviously scary. And then we didn't find out that Tatiana Maslany was going to be voicing it until like 
I don't know, like eight months into the project. <laughs> and so that was also just mind blowingly like, oh my gosh, she's reading my right words. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, no, it was very scary. Um, good. But, I'm, I just, not good that it was scary, but good that you felt some of that because I, could, I just can't imagine that happening well, to think, people. And I, you I'm, know, good that it's scary because it's really yeah. good to do scary things, um, I think, creatively and also more generally in your life. Yes, I agree with yeah. that. I agree. Cha- stepping up to that challenge is part of what makes us uh, great writers, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. think it just, it's interesting, too, to hear, like you say, you're a fan, right? Because that's just another layer, right? It's its hard enough to, like you said, write, uh, uh, extend someone else's intellectual property, but then to also be a fan of it. As, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, that's what exactly. I meant about being intimidating. Yeah. I was just like, I was like, is she, is she not normal? Does she not have, have <laughs> yeah. these feelings? That no, I would just like, totally you know, scared. I, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to feel that on some level. But yeah. you know, I kind of, I mean, it helps to some extent that like, uh, you know, I mean, I wrote a pitch and I think there were, there were a number of pitches that went in. And so there's a certain amount of like, okay, the company is picking this one. So they, you know, I'm putting some of that pressure on them. They picked yeah. it. <laughs> um, they had other yeah. choices. So, yeah. you know, if it goes bad. And then again, with the studio, you know, I can say, okay, the studio is giving us feedback. It's a lot of work to deal with like two, three layers of feedback every time we write stuff. But on wow. the other hand, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot of work, a lot of back and forth. But on the other hand, you know, it gives you some extra confidence that you're not the only one um, who's deciding that this is a, a worthy sequel. Um, and, and, you know, there's another sort of angle to it, which is, well, on the one hand, it's very scary to come in and write for a property that you love like that. On the other hand, it was kind of like writing fan fiction collectively, you know, yeah. I'm getting paid for it. So yeah. that yeah, that changes my sort of idea. Yeah, okay. I got that that so, makes some sense there. Yeah, I mean we all love the characters. So especially like that first long weekend when we were all together in the room and we could be like, you know, oh, Allison is totally gonna do this. Or uh, you know, so yeah. Cosmo and Delphine, they're they're in this yeah. relationship now. They're married. Okay, they're married, and then we all freak out, you know? So so there was <laughs> there was a lot of fun, really fun stuff on that too. And um yeah. I mean I was I have to admit, especially like it was scary going into it, but um when they when they released the first episode, you know, knowing that there's that huge fan base out there of Clone Club and knowing that there yeah. are people who care about this series so much yeah. and the characters so much. That like that week was terrifying, <laughs> um, but we've been really, really pleased and gratified by how fans have reacted. Um, so far, people have really, really loved what we've done with it. They've felt like it's a good continuation, and so that just makes me so pleased because, you know, that's what we wanted. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, so Stacey had a bit of a different question, right? Yeah, I want to pivot a little bit um, from talking about work-based uh, questions to talk about a little bit more of a personal thing. Um, as I was telling Anthony earlier, um, he did not know that you are the sister of <laughs> Daniel Jose Older. Yes, that is yeah. correct. <laughs> yeah, and he is also a writer. Actually, I knew him, oddly, uh, before I knew you because I'm not a huge science fiction person. So I used to uh, stalk your brother on Twitter a lot before. I'm just going to be <laughs> you know, flat out honest about that. So yeah. I, I didn't know that, that you guys were related and that you were brother and sister, but... Well, when I began to do a little bit of research, you know, I found out that you guys have been speaking together um, at different events, maybe university events, these sorts of things. So I was sort of wondering, um, since he does uh, young adult fiction and also um, some fantasy, do you feel there's any like sibling rivalry between the two of you? Or does that not exist? Do you both just enjoy writing in your own spaces and having your own like fans, you know, sort of stalk you, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, how does that work for you as a family or as, uh, you know, a related brother and sister? I mean, I think at this point it works out really, really well because we do both have kind of our own spaces. And it's actually great yeah. that they're yeah. related spaces because we can still, you know, talk about stuff on very much the same wavelength and we know a lot of the same people. Um, and I think even now, you know, if he started writing science fiction or um, if I, you know, wrote some fantasy, I don't even think it would feel like, because we, you know, we do have our own styles very much and we have yeah. kind of, yeah. yeah, our own fan bases and we just have our own identities. I yeah. think at the beginning it's quite hard because that's where you're trying to figure out, you know, what you're doing and, and 
whether you're going to make it or not, you know, in the, in the business and, and stuff. But I mean, at this point, it's honestly, it's, it's really great because we, we both have our own things going on, but when we are able to be in the same place together and do an event together, it's always really fun because we can kind of just talk. We know each other well enough that we don't have to remotely stress about it or prepare anything. We just kind of get together and riff. And in the meantime, you know, we can share, like a lot of times when we're talking, we'll just we'll just go on to what books we've read recently and what we thought, and we'll just just go on that for like an hour, and or we'll talk about you know things that are going on in the industry, like which cons we've been to that are good, or or you know things that we're worried about that are happening in publishing or whatever, and we're we're you know we disagree on a lot of stuff, but we've got kind of a common wavelength even with those disagreements in it. So it's a really just it's a really great. Um, relationship to have in terms of having someone who gets you that you can bounce things off of or you know that you're totally comfortable disagreeing with because you know goodness knows we spent most of our childhood and adolescence doing that uh and um yeah and you know he's he's doing really great stuff both in his writing and sort of for the community um and so yeah and plus you know as you know from stalking him on twitter he's a lot of fun to Yes, yes, no, he is. No, he he definitely is. And have you guys been um, both writing since you were children? I'm sort of wondering that question, too. Um, Yeah, although when we were kids, I was the one who was, like, super into books and writing. And he kind of did a lot of different creative things along the way. So, like, he was very into drawing when he was a kid. And he was, for a while, super into political cartooning like this oh. <laughs> very specific I can see that narrow, I can I know, totally I from, know. It's, from, it's from like, only knowing him on the digital space I could I could totally see that he would be into political cartooning and, and yeah. I'm talking about when he was like 10 okay that's amazing and uh, he was so doing these good. political cartoons and <laughs> that's amazing he was like totally obsessed with it and then he got into music so he he had a band for a while he still plays um um, but for a while, he he had a band in Brooklyn that was performing. Yeah, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he still plays. He just is, you know, he's got a lot going on, so he's a little less consistent with the performing. Um, but so he was doing all these other things and kind of came around to writing. Not that he didn't write in that time, but he was, yeah. you know, he had he had a lot of other other stuff going on. Um, yeah, both of you are, are very good at balancing multiple endeavors. <laughs> I don't know. That's it doesn't always feel like that from the inside, but yes. Um, <laughs> we, we definitely both do a lot of stuff. And it's actually kind of interesting too, um, which I hadn't thought of until someone else at some point pointed it out to me, but you know, he spent 10 years as a paramedic. Yeah, um, an EMT, right? Right. Which yeah, is, I was just like, what? You know, kind of analogous to the work I was doing overseas. Exactly, because a lot um, of that is very trauma-based. Like, yeah, yeah. Yes, and, I and have friends who are EMTs. And kind yeah. of, so, so we have these, you know, it's, re- it's really, like I said, it's really interesting. It's a really great situation for, for us in terms of having someone you can bounce off of and talk to because we have these things that are kind of common themes. And if you look at our work, I think there's a lot of common themes that we come at very, very differently, you know, and, and he spent those 10 years as a paramedic in New York city and he got very rooted yep. in, in New York and especially Brooklyn, but the whole, yep. the whole city. And that comes out in his work a lot while I was, you know, kind of moving from country to country every two to three years. And so my work is like that kind of scat. And, and, you know, those are both really valuable things as a writer, both of those work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, of course, to be in both embodied and, and somewhat intellectually disembodied yeah. are, are both really important in um, vast ways in talking about creative writing. Yeah. And right. it sounds like, that seems like an ideal situation that you have so much in common that you can connect and um, yet so much space um, that you're not stepping on each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it probably helps that we don't live in the same place. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's always really great when, you know, he was actually in town here um, in D.C. and stayed with, with me uh, a couple of weeks ago for one of his book events. And it was great to see him. And like, you know, I've, I've visited him in New Orleans and it's great. Um, but it's, <laughs> you know, it probably works better that we have that extra distance. Yeah, you um, need a little. Everybody needs a little space. Yeah. <laughs> but then it makes it all the, all the more fun when we get together. Awesome. So um, I was going to go back to talking about your work. Um, I had a question about, um, you know, the novel versus the short story collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wrote this Hugo-nominated trilogy of novels, mm-hmm. which, you know, is essentially, 
you know, it's, it's more than one story, but it's one big story, essentially, right? Yeah. Um, but your latest book, and other Disasters, is a collection of short fiction. I was wondering, you know, what you thought about writing longer versus shorter. Do you have a preference if you find yourself going to one or the other for particular reasons? And I'd like to also mm-hmm. add to the end of that question, also the poems that are in right. and other right. Disasters. I'm really also interested in that tidbit as a poet. So, uh, yeah, Anthony's question first, but also uh, <laughs> look shorter, longer, but also poetry, oh, yeah. you know, prose poems at that is some of them anyway. Yeah. Um, so I'll be, <laughs> I'll be totally honest here, even as someone who's promoting my collection of short stories and poetry, I, yes. I really like think of myself much more as a novel person, like a long mm-hmm. narrative person. I mainly yeah. read novels. I don't actually read that many short stories. Interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, and, no, I mean, no, it's inter- yeah, really interesting. But you but you obviously write both well. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, and so and I like writing novels. I think I just like having the time to really get into characters mm. and plots. And I'm the sort of person, you know, who'll read who wants a book that's just not going to end for a while, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. you know, I just, I just want to keep reading. Um, <laughs> I want the percentage on my Kindle to be low. So I know there's a lot to go. What? Um, or, or if I'm reading the book, yeah, you know, I want to know there's a thick set of pages in like my right hand. Eleven hours and six minutes left. Right. Um, and 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 when I'm writing, I te- you know when I'm writing novels, I tend to write in a pretty. Uh, I try to write kind of organically. You know, I don't make a plan. I don't make a um, outline. I'm actually, I've been busy with a lot of short stuff over the past year or, or so, because I keep getting asked to write for anthologies or, you know, I've started writing these op-ed pieces and I've been neglecting the novels. And now I'm, I'm trying to use NaNoWriMo actually to get back into some of my works in progress on the longer side. And it's, I'm really... Wait, what did you mention? I'm sorry. What was it? Oh, National Novel Writing Month. Oh yes, okay. Sorry, I, I heard yeah. it, but you okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and maybe it's Nano Rimo. I don't know. Nano Rimo, Nano Rimo. So, and and I'm really <laughs> just enjoying this feeling again of like writing stuff and having no idea where it'll go, and and these plot twists just coming into my mind. I just love that. I love that feeling. Um, so I think of myself as much more of a novel person, but I do write short stories because there are certain ideas I have, um, or images that come to mind, or or characters that you know, I just, I know they're not novels. I know they're shorter, they're compact. They, it's one thing that I need to, you know, just typically with a novel, I'll start with, um, one or two sort of images or moods. And I'm trying to get from one to the other in as long and twisting and winding away as I can, but it's very vague. I don't really know what's going to happen with a short story. Usually I want to start with kind of the whole shape of it in my head and know, like, this is the point I'm trying to make. This is this is where I'm going with it. And, and then, you know, write it as well as I can. And so there are times and there are, are things I need to write that just that are our short stories. And, you know, when that happens, I, I write them like that. Um, and I've recently, as I said, I've been asked uh, more and more for contributions to anthologies. And I actually really appreciate that because there's some short stories in the book that I probably wouldn't have written if I hadn't been asked to do something on a specific topic that I'm really, really, really happy with, uh, and really, you know, appreciate having been pushed to do something, um, shortish on, on those topics. So, you know, I'm, (laughs) I might, I might be softening my stance a little bit, but, but yeah, that's, (laughs) that's, uh, generally, generally I lean more towards the novels, but you know, there, there are some short stories out there that I, that I appreciate so much from, from other people, you know, and, and I, I really, you know, there are times when that's just the kind of writing that I need to do. Yeah. 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 Of course. It makes so much sense. And, you know, poetry, I think is, is, it's kind of a similar answer. You know, there are some things that, uh, just as, as ideas or images or, you know, juxtapositions or, or whatever it is that, it doesn't make sense as a story, but it needs to be written. Um, and that's, uh, I mean, I don't want to define poetry in that negative way either. Like it's not a story, but I need to write it. You know, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily feel like that, but it comes, you know, it comes to me feeling like a poem and, and that's what I work on. And I, 
I also, I tend to enjoy, um, I don't always write poetry in forms, but I kind of really enjoy writing form poetry because it has that puzzle feel to it a little bit. It I does. used to, yeah, absolutely. I used to really like writing sestinas. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and sonnets just because, uh, you know, it, it pushes you on your language choice and it pushes you in interesting ways. It does. Um, I find this, the same parts of my brain that like, love puzzles and brain teasers when I was younger. Um, that part of my brain feels activated when I'm trying to put together fixed form poems. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I, I do write non-form homes as well. And sometimes, you know, that right. makes more sense, but uh, yeah, I, I like both of them. And so, you know, I, I actually would like to get back a little more into poetry. Cause like I said, I've been dealing with a lot of requests, which is kind of the great thing of being a, somewhat successful writer is people yes. want your work. Um, but it does leave less space for your own creativity. And so I'm trying to, you know, that's, that's kind of the challenge is balancing, <laughs> balancing the stuff that, get, that gets paid on a reasonable schedule <laughs> with the stuff that you just feel like you want to do. We're back. With the pop portion. We are. And just the two of us, Malka stepped out. She'll be back for the bang, bang portion, portion of the podcast. Yes. Um, what do we want to talk about this month? You There's no political news going on in November. You know, I kind of love it. A, I kind of love it. I kind of love that it's quiet. I'm just like, usually, usually we're trying to weed out all of this stuff, but I well, love this. There's of the sleepy. one thing. There's the one political thing that is pretty hard to ignore in the month the, of November. Oh, yeah. I mean, impeachment trials. I don't. I mean, just when I'm in the gym trying to work out, I don't want it on my TV. I yep. know that's horrible and very trashy of me, but I just want I just want something else not on yeah. my television while I'm. I guess yeah. it's important for America to see it, though. Yeah, that's, that's important. Yeah, I mean, I have you watched any of it? I watched the first day I was watching oh, okay. it, and it was interesting and ish. Uh, yeah, I mean, part of me wants to say if there's going to be a result, that's very interesting, right? Right. right. Um, that's if also this me. is just a performance ahead of the 2020 elections uh, for Congress people both running and for parties in general, I'm a lot less interested exactly. in it. Exactly. Yeah. How um, you doing? But yeah, because that's been going on and it's been all the news on all the channels, um, there it's sort of pushed out any other political news. It has, it has, you're right. And even, and even the, um, election, uh, you know, news of the candidates and all that stuff has really died down too. I feel like. Yeah. There was a big announcement yesterday as we record this for, uh, former governor of Massachusetts just announced that he's getting into the race. But again, it was between, you know, days of testimony for the impeachment process. Right. And I also heard that Bloomberg was, uh, going to join the, the, I don't care about, I mean, and, uh, I just can't. Patrick Duvall. I just can't. I mean, you Um, know, people, the landscape needs to be more, more focused, less, less, what, anyway. Yeah. Don't pay attention to me. It it should be whatever it is. But let's talk about pop culture. Yes, we should. Let's talk about what we are talking about. Yes, you have one. You're starting. Yeah. Disney. Okay. Uh, Disney Plus. Disney Plus. Uh, Disney announced this month, or didn't announce, they, they dropped this month uh, okay. the official launch of their online streaming platform, Disney Plus. Um, it brings a whole bunch of Disney properties and Disney so, adjacent properties. I'm so distraught. Yeah. <laughs> I am so, I'm so panicked they've about got, it. <laughs> they've got um, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, yeah. Disney Classics, Disney Channel Originals, yeah. Pixar, Star Wars, uh. and Nat Geo. It has a whole lot of old favorites that have either been yeah, like, sort of like scattered. Simpsons, I yeah, think. Yeah, Simpsons is it's on crazy. there. Um, and so stuff that's been either difficult to find online or scattered, and they're bringing it all in one place. Um, For six ninety nine, I heard. Yeah, six ninety nine plus taxes a month. Um, it has some new programming as well. So right. Star Wars stuff, people are excited about the Mandalorian, the oh, new okay. original oh, I didn't that know launched. Okay. Uh, was okay. There at launch, uh, that people are enjoying, but uh, excited. I mean, I'm I'm afraid. I, I need it. I think I need it. I'm just afraid because it's another thing. It's another service I'm going to have to get. Like, I'm just like, wait a minute. They're not taking. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Then I started all piling up and I was like, wait a minute. I was like, I need some of my animations. Like, I yeah. need them for comfort. Yeah. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. when I, I told you, I, I think I've even said on Lip Pop Bang that during uh, the, 20, the 2016 elections, I was extensively watching animated movies like all during coming up to the vote. Like I was yeah. just like, yeah, it's too stressful. I need some relaxing. Yes. In a I mean, I mean mu- multiple. I yeah. was like yeah. checking out of America. Yeah. And yeah. so like, I need, I need my animation. So yeah. Yeah. it looks like Disney plus, you know what? You got me. 
I kept saying, oh, who cares? Oh, who cares? Who? Oh, who cares? But then they announced some of the stuff that's like you either the new stuff. exclusive stuff or stuff um, that I've been looking for or aching for for oh, a long okay. time. So oh, okay. certainly so the Mandalorian. The uh, right. I'm into the new Star Wars series. Right. Okay. Um, but then stuff like Simpsons all in one place, right? Right. right. Um, uh, the first three uh, seasons of the X-Men animated oh, series are on okay. there. Yeah, that would be that would be great. All of the animated series Gargoyles, which was a big late oh, 90s. Okay. Oh, it's so good. I uh, we should watch it together. It's yeah. so good. It's it's like really good. But it just smart. It's so kid uh animated, not adult animated oh, stuff. Oh, okay, okay. But it's okay. still really smart, deep storytelling. Right. I mean, I just you know, I just sort of wondering where we're going with all these streaming services in general. Like, you yeah. know, like my Well, it's a dream of the nineties, right? Is that in the nineties people are like, why do I have to subscribe to a thousand channels? I just want six of them, right? And now people are like Okay, well, we figured out a way to do that. Are you willing to pay eight bucks here and eight bucks there? Because I've got, you know, I do have cable still, but I have, I have HBO as part of that cable. I subscribe to Netflix separately, uh, and and uh, Amazon Prime, right? Um, my partner subscribes to Hulu. I have subscription to CBS uh, streaming service. You know this just making, because you know this is making you look like a TV junkie, right? I'm just. Well, that's I'm funny. We only watch TV like at night when we're grading or when right, we're right. like on a treadmill, just, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what I'm right. saying. We we pay hundred fifty yeah, plus bucks. You don't tell me for TV that we you don't, don't really me. watch or that we watch me. working. That's out. why I'm saying yeah. I'm panicked about this because I because <laughs> I'm going to be getting it. Yeah. I'm going to get yeah. Disney Plus. Yeah. Like I'm not. You know, I just can't. There's certain stuff that I'm like, oh, if it's only that one thing, I'm still going to get yeah. it. And so I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know where this whole thing is going, but it's kind of like what Jay-Z did with uh, Tidal. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm saying? It's yeah, the same. At first I was like, I'm not getting it. Yeah. I just folded my arms. Yeah, yeah. I got very indignant. Yeah. And I was like, mm. you yeah. know, and then suddenly I'm like, oh. You're like, oh, I want to listen to that album. I'm like, oh, always <laughs> oh, going to have Prince hits? Uh, I'll be <laughs> I'll be there. Yeah, that's what, that's, what that's what it is, right? It's just all they need to get you it's one is thing. one property that is exclusive to that. And you're like. I mean, that's CBS, right? I don't watch any... I'm not watching Young Sheldon, right? Right. But what I am watching is Star Trek. Right. And it's the, they're not even putting on TV. It's the only place to watch right, it on my streaming service. I'm, I'm tired of yeah. them getting me by the, the one the one. But here's hook. the thing. Here's the thing. I don't make I a lot of free. money, right? So I think I'm going to cancel oh. cable. Oh, here we which go. Which is the idea, right? You just cancel cable. Go. And then you have Netflix, here we go. HBO, Disney, right? Maybe CBS for Star Trek. Paying less... Right and still getting all the things you actually. You know what? I'm I'm such trash. I will downsize elsewhere, (laughs) and I will keep my level of subscription. I'm just bad. I'm just like I can't live without that. You know what I mean? But what I don't need are like bounty paper towels, right? You know, I can downgrade to like the generic ones. You're getting one ply paper towels and three hundred dollars of subscription. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm doing. (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right. So speaking of. Disney yes, and, and princesses. princesses. You have some princesses. Segwaying to the Duke <laughs> some royal and Duchess of Sussex. Sussex. Which we always like to, or I always like to talk about. Mainly the Duchess of Sussex. Yeah. So uh, recently, what, three days ago, which will probably be longer when this comes out. Yeah. But uh, Meghan Markle and Hillary Clinton got together. First of all, what happened was that Hillary was actually like fangirling out on Meghan Markle before they like hooked oh, up and hung out. That's yeah. Awesome, yeah. But she was tweeting yeah. and she was saying that she felt so bad for Meghan because Meghan had endured like a lot of like like racial, racial, racially biased media from sure, the UK, yeah, right? Okay, yeah. so so first Hillary was kind of like, and I think what happened, this is in my mind, I think, you know, like Meghan reached out to her people and said, you know what, get Hillary on the line. I need to hang out with her. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. That's my own dream. What, you don't think it was the opposite? You don't think it was oh, the Hillary's a people, senior what? statesperson being like, I want to hang out with this duchess. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe it happened that way, right? <laughs> but anyway, if, uh, to, to begin this, Hillary was sort of siding with Meghan and saying that she thought the media coverage of Meghan Markle was like uh, racist and problematic and, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, a week later, here they are secretly, not secretly, because yeah. the Daily UK or whatever reported on it. And then People Magazine came came out with their story that they met at the, it's called this, you know, the Frogmore Cottage, which I didn't know is where the Duke and Duchess of Sussex live. The most British name ever. Right, Frogmore Cottage. <laughs> but anyway, um, they got together and apparently they just talked like um, mom talk. And yeah. apparently yeah. Hillary got to cuddle, uh, I think it's, Archie is now six or seven months old. So she got to cuddle the royal baby. That's pretty and, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently... The, uh, the what, sixth, seventh in line for the throne? Right? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly, right. Uh, you know, uh, Archie Mountbatten Windsor. I always oh, like to Mount say his Batten. name. Yeah, it's the middle yeah. name. Yeah, I, for, 
And all the men have had mountain bad. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, the, passed down. Grand right fathers exactly passed name? down right, right exactly. Yeah. And so, and then apparently the only thing that Hillary oh, that was reported back that Hillary was talking about was her grandchild, which is Chelsea's new baby, mm-hmm. which is named Jasper. So they were doing yeah. like mom talk yeah, and yeah. supportive, yeah, like you know. But I just kind of liked it. And Meghan Markle was reported as saying that she was always a fan of Hillary Clinton. So I just liked a little like you know interracial fangirl moment. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying, Meghan Markle? Yeah, because like it's great to think like. Who does a senior statesperson fan, fangirl out of, right? right. Like, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. And so then we get to find out, you know, and I would have loved to yeah. hear um, more reports on actually what was said, of course, because I'm nosy, but yeah. we don't get that. Yeah. We just know that they hung out and hooked up. Well, you know, not on my list, but I actually know of a, a little bit of royal news oh. this month, too. Oh. Two things I heard this month. One, um, a few days from now, as of recording this, but it'll be released by the time the audience hears this, The Crown. Season three oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, is yeah. about to drop. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, Can't wait to I didn't again. know it was, uh, this, is no, this is November, so it's happening, I guess. Yeah, yeah this okay. Sunday. Yeah. Okay, As this recorded. Is, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, it'll, be yeah. Dro- it'll be out by the time. Yeah. Yes, right um, by the time. Can't wait airs. to catch that. Big fan you're, of the crowd. Crown. Like I said, uh, uh, weird thing for working class socialists to be into, but I love that show. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't uh, love it, but I've seen it before, <laughs> and so I know a lot of people. You're not the only one. Yeah, yeah. not... The only friend who has told me yeah. that it's coming out. Yeah, so. totally. And then and also, um, I just heard this yesterday, uh, the Queen announced this week that she would no longer... Actually, the Queen didn't announce shit, right? Because she's the Queen. Right. But the person who dresses the Queen okay. announced that the Queen will no longer be wearing real fur. She will only be wearing faux, faux fur, fur from now on. Yeah. I mean, but girl, you know, it's so late in the game, girl. Look <laughs> at me. I mean, I appreciate your little drop to justice, but it's a little, it's a little late, right? She's the sovereign for nations around the world. It's, of course, the, the impact of the queen herself not wearing fur, it's minimal, right? But the, no, you what know, I'm saying, modeling good behavior. Yes, but what I'm right? saying, you modeling late. I mean, like, you know, what time is it, girl? How old are you? You know what I'm saying? You should. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But yes, of yeah. course, it's yeah. wonderful that she's yeah. modeling this good. Yeah. In as much as people look up to royalty. You shouldn't look up to royalty. You should I'm look up to should, people who get stuff done. She should done. be better earlier, is what is okay. all. But yeah. I'm often intolerant. So, never mind, never <laughs> mind my... It's good that the queen is not going to be yeah. wearing real fur. Um, you know what else I want to talk about yeah. is, did you hear about this Alice Munro No, host? I have not heard this. Yeah. So, so I'm interested here. Love it, love okay. it. Okay, so... What Hopes. Uh, I love the, the news hopes. is that Alice Munro is alive. That's the good news, okay, right? Okay, right. So earlier this month, a uh, spoof Twitter account uh, oh. that was made to look like Munro's publisher, uh, McClellan oh. and Stewart, announced that the Nobel Prize winning writer was dead. And for several hours, uh, writers, readers, fans across the world, even some news outlets oh, so retweeted it and were tweeting about their how oh. heartbreaking it was. Um, until it was revealed on the Twitter account handle that it was a hoax. Um, Why? What's the, what's the... So the person, there's, they haven't proved it yet, but the person who is associated with a hoax, he's this Italian journalist troll, um, he has a reputation for spreading fake news that, uh, he says is to show problems within journalism, Right. To show that he, that he can make the spoofed account, he can tweet it, and people are going to bite. Right, um, okay. But it's weird, like, how can, I mean, it's, on one hand, it makes sense, that sort of, like, activism, you can imagine it making sense, way, right? But, but, like, you're not pretending to make fake news. No. You are making fake news, yeah, right? Um, and that has a real-world effect. It it's does. It's not this sort of experiment that takes place in a vacuum. It's not. That's real. It's not. Um, it has a real effect on the media landscape. Right. I mean, um, and how would this person have felt if, if, I mean, I hate to say this, but if people had done something like, what if somebody had jumped off a building or something? You understand yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Like, yeah. this person has created, like you're saying, the real, the possible real world effects of this, you it's know, gross. could it's be gross. really devastating yeah. personally for someone who, looks up to and loves Alice Monroe. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What if someone, it really hurts them, right? Yeah. Like, but horrible. also the implications of what it does to a media landscape, right? Spreading fake news has an effect on that media landscape. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, so, that's kind of gross. It's so gross. It made me really disappointed, but, um, you know, I hope. And I guess it can't be, can he be, can he be charged with anything? Is this illegal? I guess it's not illegal. It violates Twitter's terms of service, for oh, okay, sure. Okay, but okay. that's not a that's crime, it. right? That's, that's a violation of rules. Yeah. Yeah. 
makes me sad. But it, it is also what I tell my students, right? If you see something tweeted or shared on Facebook, like you have a Can't responsibility yeah. to click through and, and make sure you're not, you know, misreading or sharing fake news or sharing that's a heavy one. Uh, propaganda. Um, we have that responsibility. And that's why I, I sort of conceptually get it, even if I think it's a, you know, jerk off move a trash uh, move yeah, yeah, no, yeah no 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 yeah. no 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 no. i mean yeah i get his wanting to do it and why his purpose of doing it but i think fooling around with someone's life yeah. i mean is, is yeah is, is and not... alice Monroe may be a figure a literary figure yeah. but she's also a real person she is right yeah right um, with with people who care for her like real people who care for her wow and speaking about real people who care for people but this is someone that i don't necessarily care about um i just wanted to mention quickly before we leave pop culture that um john legend was named people matt people's magazine yeah. sexiest man i saw you tweeting your shade about this decision oh i mean complete like honey <laughs> a whole palm tree of shade yeah i mean i just was like i mean okay so let me john legend i mean is he the worst person ever or the most unattractive? No, definitely neither of those yeah, things. Yeah. He's kind of a cool guy. Yeah. Like a great vocalist, great yeah. singer. Yeah. Um, married to Chrissy Teigen. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they they have a cute little relationship on Twitter. They both say funny things. He also seems to be a pretty political guy. I've seen him on like Bill Maher talking yeah. about uh, the way he's invested himself into like, you know, some political endeavors outside of his celebrity dumb. Yeah. But um, sexiest man alive. Like, and then the previous year they mentioned that Idris Elba yeah. had it, and then I they, then they posted their 1997 yeah, piece yeah, or there's something. There's this great exchange. Right, where right, right, right. John Legend tweeted, uh, he's like, it's it's honor, it's a weird honor to follow up Idris Elba, um, and he showed a picture of Idris now and him. John Legend in 1997, and Chrissy was like, "All right, but we got to see what Idris looked like in 1997." And then Idris posted a photo, and he's still gorgeous. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty still, amazing. Yeah, player. we all look so terrible pretty in 97. Somehow Idris still looked absolutely beautiful. But I'm just saying, how did you know my, uh, my one of my homegirls? I won't mention her name, but one of my homegirls asked, "Well, I mean, what happened to the like? Could we have a little Keanu Reeves moment? Could we have? I mean that." I mean, there's, you know what I'm saying? I mean, for a man in his 50s, he is absolutely beautiful. Uh, I mean, yeah. And I'm also saying, if this, in 2019, people, we're moving into a new decade. Why could we also not have a queer or LGBTQ sexiest man alive? Why why could we also not have that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was just like, I mean, you know, I mean, fine. We have mostly straight men, whatever. But I mean, why couldn't we have a little different moment? I feel like 19 is the year for that. I, uh, I agree with you. I think I would. I love seeing diversity in these top lists. Um, you know. I love seeing representation like that. Love to see a queer man or a trans man um, on that list. Uh, a non-binary mask of center person would be really rad, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't feel strongly against it. Like sexiest man alive. Oh, against John right? Legend. Yeah, John Legend's a handsome guy. He's a handsome guy. I mean, right? What's sexiest man? It's a ballad. It's about he. Okay, the joke on the internet is that he looks like Arnold from Hey Arnold, right? Oh, yeah, uh, right. I saw that. And, <laughs> uh, and he's got a baby face, right? But he's conventionally attractive. He's got a well shaped yeah, face. Yeah, attractive. That's a, a word. Attractive, <laughs> not sexiest. But he also is a gorgeous vocalist, right? And yeah, okay. that is, I think, if, in my mind, when you're summing up sexy, that's an element, right? I am certainly of, I've certainly met musicians that are like, Here's what this I person would be, a, a, Here's what I say. this person is several points more attractive because they're talented. Musician. I would agree with that. Yeah. But the music is not going to make me want to get undressed. That's what, I mean, not, not with him. I'm just, you know, just, I know that is trash thing to say, but I am just saying, the music can put me in the mood yeah. and then I can be like, okay, well, where's the sexiest man? Cause it's not. I, I think, yeah, I get I, it. I get it. I, I get mean, the objection, I, but I gonna, think John Legend After, after this too. podcast, I'm going to ask you what number you think John Legend comes in. You don't have to give me the number now, but between one and 10, and I'll tell you my number in terms of sexiest <laughs> man of life. There are boatloads. <laughs> Boatloads of who? Names. Who do you, I mean, can, I would can love, you think I would of any loved, names for this year that you would? I already seen? said other Keanu, Keanu. I mean Keanu, but yeah. for me, I, I love Michael B. Jordan, and you know, well, yeah. I think yeah. I think Karamo. I mean, I think Karamo. Karamo Brown is, pretty and he's not my favorite. I, Karamo, I love you, but he's not my favorite of the Fab Five. It's always been Tan, and will always mm-hmm. be Tan. But he is by far. I mean, I think he would 
will do nicely for a sexiest man. He's he's a gorgeous. gorgeous I would, you know, and no shade to Jonathan, who is my boo of all time. Yeah, and I stand for Jonathan. Yeah, and getting curious at his podcast all the time. But you know what I'm saying? So I would have loved to see yeah. um, any of those moments. You know, yeah. Michael B. Jordan, Karamo. There's a boatload of like, I, I mean, just a boatload of people that I would just put I more. Those are both handsome dudes, but I don't think that like John Legend is out of that same league of people when it comes to attractiveness. I'm just, the sexy meter for me, it just, there's there's a thing. <laughs> I can't get into it because this podcast, people will be yeah. running into me on the street and talking yeah. about it, but I'm just, I'm just going to say John Legend does not do it for me in that way. And we are back with the bang portion yes, of the we podcast. Are. And our lovely guest, Malka Older. Yeah, and I have a, uh, this is dark. I think last month was a little bit dark. You're usually a... always dark. <laughs> you, you try to hide it sometimes, my, I think. My writing group uh, <laughs> uh, told me, and I think they borrowed this idea from a local writer, um, oh. told me I'm posy bleak. Posy bleak? I uh, love posy that bleak, Like positive and bleak. Like I love that phrase. Kind and joyful. But I love like, that. Yeah. That's a great phrase. You should put that on your Twitter profile. There's, there's a word yes. in, there's like a combo word in Indonesian, which is a language that loves common words, which is uh-huh. um, sanser, which is santai, which is relaxed, and serious, which is the loan word um, serious. Yeah. And so it's like relaxed but serious. That and, is exactly right. That is I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. So, so your question my is. My sansai word, my, my question is, um, you know, uh, we talked uh the idea of the end of the world, the idea of disasters, uh, got me thinking, and then speculative fiction, which yep. Malka writes, but I've been reading a little bit more of lately, um, got me thinking about the end of the world scenario. And her title, title of her book yeah, is And, and Other Disasters. disasters. Right, right. Yes. So I was going to ask all three of us, what is sort of the classic end of the world trope, whether it's uh, speculative fiction, religious, or real world, that scares you the most? What scares you the most? And we'll start with our guest, Malka, what's yours? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I find them all scary. One of this is like an occupational hazard of working in disasters is that, of course, it's it's very real things, for you. Things yeah. become very real, yeah, and um, and it's part of the reason I tend not to write too much horror, although there's one kind of horror adjacent story in the collection, um, because it's already there. Like I don't feel like I need to invent it much, um, but I will say, you know, that one of the things that I found uh, working in disasters. That makes a difference. And so one of the things that I would consider, I mean, I don't know, you know, if the world ends, the world ends. I'm not sure how much the manner <laughs> is going to matter to us at that point. Right. But, yeah. I, but you know, one thing that that I, I've noticed working in different disasters that, that, that really makes a difference in how people react and how they recover and how they feel about it is this sort of question of um, blame versus randomness. And, you know, people have different opinions of this. Some people really hate stuff that feels very random, um, whether it's for religious reasons or for, uh, just, you know, they can't, they can't deal with the fact that there's nothing to pin the blame on. But I personally, you know, really dislike, uh, the stuff that we inflict upon ourselves. And we see a lot of that right now. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a trope in disaster studies or I don't know, a trope, a finding that there's no such thing as a natural disaster. There's these natural hazards that occur and they interact with things that humans have done, um, right, which right. is, you know, at a basic level, very true. Like if you don't have a building to fall down, then an earthquake is going to be much less damaging. Um, but on the other hand, it's also becoming sort of more and more true because almost everywhere in the world, when there is a natural hazard that occurs, it's going to interact not only with things like buildings, but also things like industry and chemicals. And, right. uh, you know, there's going to be that technological aspect that's making it much, much worse. And we're even doing that without the hazards. <laughs> We've got yeah. technological disasters all over the place. So I think, you know, the thing that really the thing that really scares me is 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 stuff that we are doing to ourselves. And, and that just, I think, has a kind of awful extra feel to it. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be like. Uh, that seems to be core to your dissertation too, right? Both Katrina and the the Fukushima disaster are there's there's the natural occurrence, but then there's sort of both human behaviors before, during, and after that can make that you know much more severe or you know ideally less severe. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. very much. Yeah. CC. Um. So uh, Anthony was asking me this question even before the podcast. 
And I told him I basically have nothing. <laughs> I am, I, it's not that I don't think the end of the world could happen, but I don't spend any time, like none whatsoever, thinking about like, that's, that's probably why I'm not much of a sci-fi person is because I don't, I'm, I'm really very, I guess, in a weird way for a creative writer, very, very, very invested in here and now and like yeah. what we can do to change the world in terms of, you know, climate change and all these things, all these things that I'm really invested in thinking about to, to change where I'm at right now. I'm like, oh, if it ends, then I just die. Right. Like, I mean, like, what, none of these efforts go forward in the future. But for me, I just really, um, you know, I'm also also being black. You know, I feel like everyday existence is kind of um, fraught sometimes. Yeah. So I also don't have a, a dream, like a dreamscape in that in that uh, respect. Of course, I watch tons of movies that I'm, I guess, I guess a little scared of, but yeah. not really. Like, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, I don't, um, you know, I think kind of what Malka is saying, I do have um, fear. It's not disaster really, but it's really about humans. It's really about what humans do, mm. not even in disaster, but really in just like, dr- you know, dramatic situations, right? If there's a fire in a building mm-hmm. and people don't exit in, in an orderly fashion, right? Yeah. You understand yeah. small things. Yeah. I'm really like not big grand. I'm just like, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm like imagining things that like where humans behave badly sometimes. I mean, you know, and that thing sort of makes me worry yeah. about um, everyday occurrences. Yeah. Yeah. More than like future. Do <laughs> um, you remember that earthquake that happened in the region a few years ago? It was like 2010 or 2009. Oh, yeah. I, was just, I just landed here actually yeah. in the DMV area. That, yeah. I had just come here. Yeah. So I was working in a place in D.C., um, a really uh, a well-known, respectable nonprofit filled with kind people. And that you won't name. Uh, yeah, I want to name I just it. Um, I'm vaguely here. But, um, <laughs> during that event, someone I worked with, um, the, you know, the alarms went off. The earthquake happened. The alarms went off, and they um, literally pushed people out of the way yeah, see. as mm-hmm. we were going down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, they had to apologize. They're like they're they're good, kind people, but afterwards, they had to apologize. This was a person or multiple people. A person, one person. Oh, one had person. to go around apologizing for the way they behaved. When they thought, wow. see that that their buildings fall down, right? And that's exact. That's scary, right? And like, that and that we can me, do this together, right. right? But if we're pushing people out of the way, it's going to be a lot scary, right? Like I feel like if the hurricane or the whatever comes, then you know whatever we tie in mass, like yeah. you know, and there's nothing, there's no way to save that. But I think um, it's really important for for human beings to realize that you know we are all kind of in this together, and that makes me climate change, all the things, you know, yeah. all these things are just really um, resources, uh, you know, on this yeah. planet, and for people, all that stuff makes me. Um, more, not nervous, but, you know, more uh, pissed off, I guess, in a way, yeah. than thinking about something uh, bit bigger. I guess yeah. I just, you know, yeah, yeah for me. Yeah, um, for me, I think mine is, it's related, but only tangentially. For me, what's scary is is sort of what happens if technolog- technological collapse happens just yeah, because so real. many of our systems are automated yeah. mm-hmm. or you know, calculated mathematically or algorithmically. Like your bank that, account. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Just but like that, like uh, shipping across right. the country, um, how much of our knowledge is being stored digitally now versus Definitely. physically That's now. That's crazy. And it's like the idea of like, there are people all across the world who don't live in a, in a culture that yes, does rely on that. True. But I'm really interested in what happens to, to cultures that aren't, used to that, right. um, but right. also that have built for the last several decades right. a world that relies on that. Yes. Uh, and I think that's a very it adapts, sure, but I have to imagine it's some scary years oh, or yeah. something like that were to happen. And also that humans would be behaving badly while this was going on. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah, what I'm absolutely. saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just talking the other day about um, Y2K, and I realized oh, yeah. that <laughs> my students probably don't remember Y2K. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if they know that phrase. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a great that's such a great example of I don't know <laughs> so many things. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great yeah. little story. Yeah. It's it's embarrassing. <laughs> kind of embarrassing to think of like if I did tell my students like oh yeah uh, Xers forgot to put zeros or forgot to put four digits and all of us were. Uh, nervous that was going to cause the end of the world. I think and, it, I think that was a little before Xers in terms of who I was just going to say right. That's what as 
as as a, as an early Xer, thank you, yeah. and, a, and you as an elder millennial, don't try to come from my don't try yeah, to come from my generation. That was not my fault. It was probably boom. It was probably boomers that were building a lot it of that probably stuff. Was. I, but I right. I mean, that's I'm right. Not to hate on them either, but I'm I'm just giving credit where credit's due. You boom, know what I'm boom, saying? Boom. We don't we don't we don't Xers don't do pretty much anything. We don't rule or <laughs> any any. Not not votes, not not anything, really. But one of the things that I, I love about that story is just, you know, without putting a huge amount of blame on it, I mean, that made sense at the time because it was because technology changed so much between then and also because people don't look at the future. Like it was not that far away when they were programming this stuff to know that they were gonna need four digits. Right. And yet right. I was filling in a form yesterday and it the you know it had the the space for the date and it was like two zero one blank and I was like well they're gonna have to print some new forms pretty soon they sure will um, and you know I I I just think about it all the time or like you know uh, around the time before uh, Y two K when it was starting to be sort of an issue in ninety eight I think or ninety seven was when they were hand- getting ready to hand over Hong Kong right and that was another one where you were thinking of a ninety nine year lease that somebody arranged this 99 year lease and they were like yeah we don't have to worry about it and then what do you know 99 years pass i mean the things you know this this sort of sense of people doing these big things that have long-term implications without really thinking into the future that much is just so interesting for me as a as a science fiction writer So that's it. We're that's our episode. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thanks our guest Malka for joining us. Thanks to our listeners Absolutely too. a pleasure. Yeah. And thank you for listening, listening. each month. As Lunches. always, we'll ask you to subscribe, subscribe. to follow us. Twitter, Instagram, Instagram all that stuff. All yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, rate us, follow us, subscribe to us. That all helps us out tremendously. You can also tell me what you think of my trash comment about John Yeah. Legend. You can sound off uh, on, on, on any of those social media platforms. Definitely. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Uh, follow our guests, of course, too. Um, As always, I'm Anthony. And I'm Cece. And this has been Lit Pop Bang. Bang.